Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology's Chelsea Rose hosts conversations on the Jefferson Exchange about archaeology and the process of unearthing our past. In this episode, she brings listeners along on an archaeological survey as she and her team check out a Rogue Valley farm to learn what was there before. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between JPR and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today we're doing something completely different. You can hear my boots on the ground because I am actually out in the field speaking with a variety of professionals, students, and volunteers about the archaeological process, the tricks, and the tools of the trade. We're surveying today, so no shovel needed, but we're using a variety of techniques to explore the past of our region. And this is ranging from low-tech, basically our feet and our eyeballs, to a sophisticated remote sensing method called ground penetrating radar, or GPR for short. Archaeological sites come in all shapes and sizes, and so archaeologists need to have a wide range of tools in their toolkit. And this can be anything from a paintbrush to a backhoe and everything in between. So part of the trick is knowing what methods to apply and where. Today we're doing archaeological survey, which is usually the first phase of an archaeological investigation. Basically, we're seeing if we are even in an archaeological site or not. And don't worry, we are. Because it'd be way too boring to bring you listeners along if we weren't finding anything. So let's go up and see what's going on. First, we're going to start with the folks doing the pedestrian survey. So we are going to go over here and try to track down archaeologist, Sula archaeologist, Keone Diacamos. Hello, I'm Keone Diacamos, and we're out here doing a pedestrian survey. And so a lot of times when archaeologists do pedestrian survey, they're not only looking for artifacts, but they're also recording like the conditions in the field. And so that ranges from good visibility to bad visibility, you know, those kind of site conditions. So what kind of things are you seeing today since our listeners can't see what's happening? <laughs> yeah, so today we're actually starting starting out in a field that's been recently plowed, so our visibility is really, really good. Further down, they're planting some stuff, so visibility is going to drop off considerably just because you will have things covering the ground, like grasses or weeds and plants and whatnot. We're at this site, we're finding stuff that ranges from the indigenous occupation of the area through the historical occupation of the site. So basically in this instance, that means stone tools and the byproducts of making them, which we call flakes, as well as bottle glass, ceramics, and materials that would have been used in the 19th and 20th centuries. I think you've said you've already surveyed 200 acres out here. So what kind of stuff have you seen so far? So what we've been finding a lot of is mostly pre-contact associated artifacts, primarily flakes or debitage, which is the byproduct of stone tools being made, uh, some of which have been heat treated, which is purposeful manufacturing of a tool, much like you'd do like temper iron or something like that. You can do the same thing with shirt, which is the primary product that we're seeing out here. So in order to stiffen it up, make it harder, make it a better tool and whatnot. We're also finding things associated to the agricultural side of this. So this was an agricultural area over 100 years post-contact. So we're also finding little bits of ceramics, like white improved earthenware. So like cups and things like that, or that somebody cast aside glass. We're finding historic glass bottles, some sun colored amethyst, some cobalt, some aqua glass, yeah, and I, I just want to get back a little bit to, you know, talking about the stone tools. So we had a conversation when everybody was getting oriented out here, talking about the types of materials we're looking for. So we're commonly finding shirt, which is a really vitrified stone. So it makes great stone tools. And, and those, a lot of times, well, we call them projectile points, but people might 
say arrowheads. So the different types of things that you would use on an arrow or spear or something like that. But we also are seeing scrapers for like processing hides or groundstone tools for, for processing plants, for pounding things. You know, there's all different types of tools in the toolkit when you stay stone tool. Do you want to just speak a, a little bit more about that? So as you were already talking about, so there's a lot of different ways you can use these natural geologic byproducts to, to make a tool. So yeah, so you could even just utilize the flakes. So some of those flakes we were finding, you could see some of them have U-square or edge modification to make an expedient cutting tool or a scraper. Uh, or you'll find just like a regular rounded cobble that's which are really common around these streams but they're perfect to be utilized as like a hammer or just some like a, a pounding implement or using it as a way to process like acorns or any plant material for food or even for weaving baskets and whatnot and processing those fibers out of them. Yeah, and I think a lot of times when people think stone tools, they tend to default to this idea that they're really primitive. But really, some stone tools can be very sophisticated. Um, you know, there's a lot of spears and, and blades and stuff out of obsidian or different types of materials that can that's not easy to make. But then also, if it does the job, then it's perfectly sophisticated for what it needs to do. So stone tools aren't always super primitive. The other thing that we were talking about a little bit was the types of stones we would expect to find here versus what we know is not from here, like obsidian, for example, because that means a person traveled a long way with that material. So that's another way that we track uh, movement of people over time. And so have you been seeing any obsidian here at the site? Yeah, we've definitely seen a few bits of obsidian here and uh, here and there, mostly as flakes. We haven't found any diagnostic tools or anything, but that doesn't mean they're not out here. Uh, we could. There's also the potential of finding uh, what we'd call like blanks or preforms, which are processed cobbles of obsidian down to a more transportable size. So it's not like you would get a cobble of obsidian and then bring it all over. You would possibly even just nap it at the quarry to make it a nice size so you can work on it later down the ro road or even to use it as trade. And that's such a great example of, you know, I've said this a lot of times on the show that artifacts are a means to the end and that's the people. And so even with, you know, a piece of a rock, you can actually start to see movements and social relationships and all these other things that speak to identity and experience of the people that lived here before us. So thanks for spending time with us, Keone. Now back to work. <laughs> all right. So we are talking with SO you student Haley and do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hi my name is Haley I'm a SOAN student and education student minoring in Native American studies. Um, this is my first time doing a survey I did a grid worked with that a little bit and that was really fun but this is my first time doing the actual surveying and this is really exciting for me too because I'm a tribal member of the Sluts tribe we're originally from this area and so I feel like a connection to the past and to my ancestors by doing this as well and I'm just really excited I love archaeology and yeah it's been really fun and I'm excited for what we're gonna find so in seeing kind of the process behind this is this helping you you've spent some time in the lab with us looking at artifacts you know when they're out of context so seeing things come up in their original place is that helping you see how the story of you know your ancestors are how we can tell that story based on you know just walking around in an old field yeah <laughs> it is really interesting seeing how we're finding everything in the grid and like seeing the mathematical aspects of mapping and really seeing how the context tells the story and being in the lab is really interesting but i feel like actually being out here is more raw and more fun and we're actually 
discovering the history, I feel like, instead of just reading it. <laughs> That's great. And we won't take you away from that process anymore. And you're wearing your hat and you got your water. And so you are prepared to go to go uncover the past. So thanks so much for talking with Thank us. Thank you. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. GPR is an increasingly popular tool in the archaeological community as it's a non-invasive way to look underground. Let's get a better idea of how this works. And I'm not going to lie, the old machines beeped and made all sorts of noise, but the new ones are pretty slick and quiet. We really just hear them like brushing across the ground. So it's not super interesting over the radio, but I can beep a bit so you can feel like you're witnessing something sciencey happening if that's beep, beep, beep. Let's go talk to Jeremy. Beep, beep. So this is Jeremy Johnson, and he is the one who has um, been running the GPR for us this week. So you want to introduce yourself and then tell us a little bit about what the GPR process is and why it's becoming so increasingly popular within the archaeological circle. So I'm Jeremy Johnson. I am the tribal archaeologist for the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. At least to me, I've worked with a number of tribes in GPR, ground penetrating radar, helps us find things in the ground and do more targeted research without disturbing what was left behind by the ancestors. And so it's a good way of non-invasive uh, study and how can we get the answers from the things without destroying it. Archaeology is inherently destructive. So pretty much it sends radio waves into the ground and as it passes through different media, so different dirt or sediments or metal or anything, it bounces those waves back. Once it switches between densities, that's when the machine will pick it up and then we can see it. And at that point, if we have hits or anomalies, we can do more targeted, oh, well, what's that thing? And we can dig there as opposed to dig everything, which can be costly, destructive. And so GPR is a good way of pinpointing things in the field. And that's a good point that sometimes the, the software for interpreting the GPR data or results have has improved so much because it can be really tricky to know what you're finding. So what are some of the instances um, from your experience that you found this to be a really important and useful tool. So one project that I was on, we were trying to find uh, paleosols. So those are really old soils in, as in, uh, in conjunction with the reservoir. So the reservoir was created. It rises, comes down, rises, comes down, deposits new sediments all over the place. Well, we knew that there was a little spur prior to that, and we knew that there was stuff potentially on that. And so we were trying to run it to find that little spur. I didn't process the data, so I can't say if we found it or not, but it, it looked promising from what I was seeing. Another common use is there's a lot of unmarked graves around cemeteries and so prior to you know putting in a utility line or putting in new graves and caskets you run that over there it's like oh well we have something right here we should probably not put it here and then you can find a more viable spot. Well I know cemeteries has been really good um, use of this technology. We've had really good luck in John Day looking at the John Day Chinatown surrounding the Kamwa Chung. Most of my experience over the past like 15 years or so um, I've had a love-hate relationship with GPR because I remember working in Scotland they were like, hey, it's a sword. And so we all excitedly dug down and it was a rusty old water pipe. So the technology can show us anomalies, but it's still really down to the computer program and the human. So you really got to use as much information as you can about the site and the specific soil conditions to interpret the data. So here specifically, we're wrangling this machine over these furrows from the plow. So you're seeing that in the data here. And how are you going to use that information to kind of erase the, the noise 
ways from what's actually the data we're going for. Yeah, and then, so the software has its already built-in algorithms. So like the furrows, it's going to be same spot pretty much in every single line typically. And so there's an algorithm where you can be like, if it looks like it's this thing, but we're saying it's not this thing, then it'll erase it. The furrows are also only about six to eight inches down. So we can be like manually ignore it because like, okay, we know this isn't a thing until we get below this depth. And then if something continues down there, then okay, maybe we do have something. <laughs> so basically what we're seeing is it looks like a bunch of, of wavy nonsense. That's about what it is, is wavy nonsense. So even anytime that it the machine picks up a hit or anomaly, it's going to create what's called a parabola. And so that's what it's reading as it's coming up. And so their series, if we have like a series of series of arches, kind of like we see right here, there's a dark line that's going across. It's about a meter down without digging in the soil. I don't know 100%, but since I've seen that across the whole site, I'm thinking of it's what's called a fragipan. And so it's kind of where like minerals solidify on it and creates kind of like a hard surface. And given the colors of, of coming back on the machine as white, black, white, that means it's going to a denser thing. So could that be the bottom of the plow zone? Because a lot of times when you have plowed, you know, 18 inches over years and years, you're going to get that compaction at the bottom of the plow zone. Do you think that could be what we're seeing? It could be. Um, at a meter, you're roughly over three feet deep. After half a meter, there is a little faint indication that could be the plow zone, which I would say it is. I did see it a little bit more extensive. And then if we were to see like a buried foundation or like in the UK, they're always like, oh, a Roman villa, you know, then we're going to see like 90 degree corners and things like that. And that's going to tell you that this is not a natural soil formation. This is something that humans did at some point. Pretty similar to that. You won't see like the 90 degrees. So you're always looking, looking over it. So you'll see the flat surface at the top of the foundation. And then if there's a wall, you won't see the wall itself, but you'll see where the floor starts. So you'll see anything as you go down. So you can see this data in plan view, basically you're saying, but isn't there also a way to do slices? Not with this thing, because that's, that's just how it operates. The radio waves go straight down and come straight back up typically. Okay, so you've had some assistance today so far. So Connor is one of them who said he'd be willing to talk to us. So Connor, can you just explain for our listeners, so we've set up a grid, but tell them a little bit about how you're we're keeping on these transects. So we're collecting this data scientifically and in a controlled manner so that we can make sense of it later. Yeah, so we were trying to keep a straight line with another like measuring line every meter or so. And the overall goal is to keep like the left wheel of the sort of carriage along the measuring line as close as possible and that allows us to keep like an even canvas and sort of make sure we're not going all over the place and all squirrely um thinking of it sort of like again the lawnmower example when you mow a lawn you want to do a pattern where you like get to one end and when you turn around you set your wheel right where you left off and that's sort of what we're trying to replicate here with that line to guide us so that wraps up this round of underground history on the Jefferson Exchange. Thanks for joining us today from the comfort of your air-conditioned homes. It's a lot hotter out here in the field. Um, and a special thanks to Charlie Zimmerman, our field producer, who was brave enough to come out here with me and, um, and record this process. You can find underground history online at jeffexchange.org or wherever you get your podcasts.